Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the uh, New Books and World Politics podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Jeffrey Gordon, and today I'm talking to Adam Hania. He is the author of Money, Markets, and Monarchies, the Gulf Cooperation Council and the Political Economy of the Contemporary Middle East. Um, when a lot of Americans or Brits think about the Gulf, they think of oil uh, as the primary economic sector. But as this book demonstrates, uh, conglomerates from the Gulf are very active in uh, the global economy in a number of different sectors, including agribusiness, real estate, and finance capital. They've become major uh, political and economic actors throughout the Arab Middle East and, and in the broader global political economy. Uh, and this book is uh, about the relationship between state and class formation within the Gulf and how the Gulf has come to occupy such a central place in the political economy of the broader Middle East. Um, so Adam, uh, let me ask you, um, this is your third book about the, the economies of the Gulf Cooperation Council, um, Capitalism and Class in the Gulf Arab States and Lineages of Revolt, which is uh, also about the broader Middle East. Um, how does this book fit into your broader research program, and how did you become interested in the Gulf Cooperation Council? Uh, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I, I guess uh, I mean, just to perhaps to begin with pointing out uh, when we talk about the Gulf Cooperation Council, we're speaking about uh, six uh, states, all of them monarchies, um, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, uh, United Arab Emirates and Oman. Uh, these six states, uh, they formed the Gulf Cooperation Council in 1981, um, which was a regional integration project, uh, which uh, to some degree uh, models the European Union in the sense that it's an attempt at economic and political uh, integration. Uh, it doesn't have a common currency, but there is uh, coordination and, and uh, 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 some degree of integration across these six states, although there are important differences between them, which I, I think we could probably get into a little bit later. Uh, but my interest in these states really stem from uh, a wider interest in the Middle East and, and uh, a feeling that a lot of uh, approaches to the Middle East tend to focus on one or two states, uh, Egypt, Palestine, Lebanon, uh, uh, and uh, divorce the dynamics in those particular national states from the wider region. And it's very clear if you look at the Middle East that the center of accumulation, capital accumulation in the region is really uh, the Gulf states. Uh, uh, these states have become increasingly significant to how the wider region plays out. So I, I uh, my, my interest in, in, in looking at the Gulf is it was uh, an attempt to kind of understand, firstly, how capitalism operates in these six states in the Gulf region, and secondly, how does that impact the political economy of the wider uh, of the wider Middle East? So, my my first book looked more at the GCC itself um, and its position in the global economy and class and and, and capitalist development in the, in the GCC. Uh, my second book looked at 
It was written in the wake of the the Arab uprisings in uh, late 2010 and 2011, uh, and was looking at the kind of political economy of the of the wider uh, region. And this book really is an attempt to place the Gulf's uh, uh, position as a center of capital accumulation uh, and try to theorize and also track empirically how does that what does that mean for class and uh, uh, and capitalism in other Arab states. Um, if we look at that relationship between the Gulf and uh, countries like Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Morocco, Tunisia, and so forth. Yeah. Um, so in in the book, you use the phrase uh, "collegi capital" to describe the capitalist uh, class made up of large uh, conglomerates in the Gulf states. Uh, what does collegi capital m- mean, and what are some examples of these conglomerates that listeners in in uh, the U.S. or the U.K. would have heard of? At a very straightforward level, Khaliji capital means Gulf mm-hmm. capital. Uh, and I, I use this term to try to uh, emphasize the, the ways that capital accumulation um, is quite tightly integrated both in the Gulf across these six GCC states. Uh, there's, there's in some sectors significant levels of cross-border investments um, in the GCC. Uh, but as I try to show in this, in this latest book, uh, it has a very significant impact um, in the wider Middle East. So what I mean by this is that if we look at these conglomerates, these are large conglomerates. Uh, they uh, are uh, active across all uh, parts or, or, or a wide variety of different economic um, activities. So uh, I, I use a Marxist approach, the, circ- the circuit of capital, to try to look at, for example, uh, productive uh, activities, financial activities, uh, retail activities. And you can see these conglomerates um, are active across all of these parts of the circuit of capital. So uh, typically, they will be uh, very heavily involved in, in construction and real estate, for example. They will also be involved in the retail sector um, and, and bringing in importing goods and selling those goods to, to the general public. They'll also be involved in banks and financial um, institutions. They'll also be involved in logistics and transport and agribusiness. Um, so you have these conglomerates with these highly diversified structures. Uh, they are uh, often trace their origins to merchant families, uh, older merchant families. uh, And very importantly, they include in a private capacity uh, members of the ruling family in the Gulf. Uh, So you will find uh, in, in, in the six GCC states that the, the ruling families, uh, not only do they dominate the state apparatus, not only do they dominate the politics of, of the Gulf, they also have extremely important um, economic uh, uh, activities and, and influence. But this is at a private level as well. It's not simply as, 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 as members of the state. They, have, they, they control important levels of um, important amounts of the private uh, economy too. So... That's what I mean by uh, Khaliji capitalists. Essentially, these conglomerates that 
constitute the capitalist class in each of these six uh, uh, Gulf states. So to give you some examples, uh, you know, uh, Al-Rajai in, in, in Saudi Arabia is a major a banking family, but also active in agribusiness, um, uh, retail, construction, and so forth. Al-Khurafi in, uh, in Kuwait uh, is, uh, again, um, a, a family, a mer- earlier merchant family involved in uh, retail, uh, food, very prominent in food activities, in construction, in banking. Uh, in the UAE, United Arab Emirates, uh, Majd al uh, is a, uh, a major uh, mall operator, um, as well as shopping, retail and construction, banking. So these, these kinds of patterns where you have these conglomerates that are active across uh, a wide range of different um, uh, economic activities. And they're internationalized. They're not just active in their own uh, national borders. They're also active in the wider Gulf and uh, 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 further afield in the Middle right. East. Right. And um, these conglomerates are, are similar to conglomerates that are major players in a lot of uh, um, global South countries, uh, for example, in countries that I've looked at, like Thailand and Indonesia, you see a similar um, diversified conglomerate structure um, um, where uh, companies may start off in something like retail or, or merchant capital kind of activities. And then as the, the state tries to um, institute uh, policies to diversify the economy, these conglomerates are the ones who are in a place to who have the capital and the know-how to um, expand into these new activities. But also uh, an interesting similarity um, between the conglomerates in the Gulf and, and in other parts of the global South is uh, the close uh, interrelationship between state and capital here. Um, For example, in Indonesia, large diversified conglomerates will have members of the military on uh, uh, their their, um, board of directors and and as major shareholders. Um, uh, So I want to talk about this relationship between the the state and the private sector, which in mainstream political economy are often presented as uh, ontologically different realms uh, that have an external relationship with each other. Um, The economy and and the state exist um, separately and may interact when the state interferes in the realm of the economy or when um, uh, economic actors try to bribe state actors. Uh, But as you discuss, the relationship between ruling uh, families and private capital is much deeper than that in in reality in the Gulf. Uh, uh, You say that there is an internal relation between state and capital. Um, uh, uh, And this is often presented as a deviant case of capitalist development, how it's not how it's supposed to work. Um, Could you... uh, uh, describe more what you mean by the internal relation between state and capital in the Gulf and uh, maybe compare um, the relationship between the state and the economy in the Gulf to other places. Yes, uh, as you pointed out, uh, I, I do really, uh, or I have tried in this book and, and in other parts of my work to, to, to try to work against this kind of exceptionalizing approach to the Gulf. In other words, uh, I don't think the Gulf uh, 
differs in some kind of dramatic or uh, 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 way from other capitalist states. Um, I, I think the Gulf states are capitalist states, um, and in these states uh, we see the state operate as a capitalist state. In other words, uh, the state supports capital accumulation um, uh, and uh, uh, very often accumulation uh, is through uh, through the state or through one's proximity to the state uh, apparatus. So uh, I don't think that differs um, significantly from the examples you mentioned like Brazil, India or China, but also I think to um, uh, even places like the United States or the, or the United Kingdom uh, where it's very clear that leading uh, uh, capitalist businesses, um, leading uh, uh, economic actors uh, are very closely interrelated with uh, political power in these states. Um, uh, they depend upon contracts uh, from the state uh, and the state acts to, to, to support and um, support their accumulation. So uh, that's the first thing, that the, the Gulf is not some kind of exceptional space. Uh, now, as you pointed out, uh, I used the term internal relation. I'm, I'm borrowing this term from uh, 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 a Marxist philosopher, Bertel Ullmann, um, who has really written, I think, some excellent work on uh, the idea of uh, uh, how we should think about the state um, and, and its relationship to uh, economy and to, to capital. Um, and he uses the term internal relation to, to, to say that we should focus on the relationship between these different spheres, not treat these spheres as being separate or distinct from one another, but try to understand how they're mutually dependent and shape um, the conditions of existence of each other. So uh, in the Gulf, uh, and as I said, I think this is not unique to the Gulf, but in the Gulf, you can see uh, uh, the, the capitalist class is, uh, number one, dependent upon accumulation um, uh, opportunities that often come through access to the state contracts for, for, for buildings or land, cheap land, um, uh, agency rights for importing of goods, for example, uh, the support uh, for overseas expansion, um, joint investments with private capital, these kinds of things. Um, but secondly, you see, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the ruling family and members of the ruling family uh, act as private capitalists in their own right. So we can't see the state as being distinct or separate from uh, uh, capital that we have uh, in the Gulf uh, uh, wealthy businessmen who also happen to be members um, of, uh, of the ruling family. Uh, so it's, it's trying to understand the, these, two, uh, these two spheres as being um, internally related and mutually dependent, I think really can add um, a lot to how we understand uh, our understanding or, yeah, our understanding of the state and capital in the region. Um, yeah, uh, the Gulf is not unique. And when you talk about, um, you, you know, it's interesting to me that Saudi Arabia is uh, talked about in the mainstream political economy literature as the example of a rentier state. And specifically, they talk about uh, the effect that oil rents have on, on or high oil prices can have on, on the uh, uh, deviant political development trajectory of, of states like Saudi Arabia, but the types of rents that you talk about in, um, as uh, being uh, important factors in the development of these conglomerates, the the cheap land, the subsidies for um, export-oriented production, um, and the 
relationship between economic diplomacy and conglomerate expansion. These are pretty ordinary as far as uh, capitalist economic development goes. Uh, and I think you're, you're, you make a good case that the Gulf states are not really deviant in any um, major way, even if uh, the particular form of organization uh, of the state might differ in, in the Gulf from other places. Um, yeah, so, so yeah. if I could just interject, we, we certainly can see this in, in the case of uh, the COVID crisis at the moment, the way that uh, governments around the world uh, in the UK, uh, where I live, is, is certainly no exception to this, uh, have uh, given multi-billion pound contracts to various private firms, uh, whether it be around testing or, or uh, a provision of medical support or whatever. Um, and these are essentially... Uh, direct ways in which the state is supporting um, these, these kinds of pri- private firms um, across the whole, the whole sector. And, I, and the same is in the U.S. regarding the pharmaceutical in- industry and, and many other examples. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, this, uh, there's no economy where, no capitalist economy where the state just lets the market allocate resources without having any kind of policy instruments that act as subsidies for, for firms uh, um, in, in real ways. Um, another major theme in the book is the role that uh, global financial integration and the implementation of neoliberal policies in other Arab states have played in the formation of the Gulf's capital class. Um, how has Gulf capitalism contributed to forming the hierarchical world economy that has materialized over the, the last few decades with the global transitions to neoliberalism? And, yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I was going to add, uh, is it fair to say that the adoption of neoliberal so, structural adjustment programs and competitiveness policies throughout the Middle East has created opportunities for capital accumulation for Gulf conglomerates? Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, firstly, at the, glo- the to the global uh, question, uh, obviously uh, the, the the question of oil is really uh, central here, and it has been through uh, from the mid twentieth century onwards. Uh, the Gulf's uh, uh, immense importance as a major source of oil and gas uh, supplies uh, to the world market. Um, so, in this sense, uh, I think there's really an interesting story that's been been told by a number of um, number of people from different angles, trying to trace the way that uh, the dependence of of global capitalism on hydrocarbons, in particular oil, uh, has been connected to uh, the rise and prominence of the Gulf um, as both a a geopolitical object, uh, uh, but also as a major actor in in oil markets uh, globally. So that's one side. But the other side to this, um, uh, which I talk a little bit about in the book, and I think it's really important to also um, integrate into how we understand the Gulf's place in the global uh, economy is what happens to the financial surpluses that accumulate in the Gulf as a result of its oil uh, and hydrocarbon sales. Uh, so there's a very interesting story here uh, around the emergence of uh, uh, U.S. financial dominance globally uh, and the recirculation of financial surpluses from the Gulf, uh, not exclusively from the Gulf, but important as a very important part of the of, of the global, uh, the Gulf's financial 
um, surpluses going into U.S. Treasuries, um, U.S. stock markets, um, and broader broader investments. So this is one one part of the story. Uh, the other the other side to this global question, I think, is the the way the GCC has in the last two decades uh, has served as an important market for uh, firms, uh, large international um, firms. So you can see this particularly in sectors like real estate, uh, high end engineering, uh, uh, banking, um, that uh, many, many firms uh, globally, uh, do see the, the the Gulf as an important market. This this is connected to the development um, of cities and and infrastructures uh, in in the Gulf region. Uh, other aspects to the Gulf's position in the global that are important to, to look at uh, uh, one one very important. Uh, feature is uh, the weapons uh, market. Uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Qatar um, ranked as the first, eighth and tenth largest arms importers in the world um, between 2015 and 2019. Uh, So you can see just what, uh, how how important uh, the Gulf is to to sales of um, uh, uh, to military sales, uh, particularly from the United States, um, uh, the United Kingdom, and France, uh, the, the big kind of exporters to, of military uh, hardware to the to the region. Uh, remarkably, the GCC purchased more than one fifth of the world's total arms imports between 2015 and 2019. So this is another way that we see. Uh, petrodollar surpluses or the financial surpluses that are accumulating in the Gulf recirculate to Western economies through the sale of arms. Um, there are other, other aspects that are also important to look at here, including uh, transport and logistics. Uh, the Gulf, uh, some of the Gulf states, particularly the United Arab Emirates, plays a really important role in, in air transport um, and maritime transport ports um, in particular, and increasingly, uh, you know, is a major global actor in, in these kind of um, essential critical infrastructure uh, networks. So I think there's there's a, a whole range of aspects to the way that the the Gulf plays this global role that goes beyond simply the question of oil. Um, this is not to say that oil is not important, but there's other sides um, that we need to think about um, to how the, the Gulf's role in, in, in the in the global. Uh, second, the second part of your question, looking at uh, the Middle East and what does uh, what has uh, neoliberal structural adjustment policies in, in other Arab countries in the Middle East meant for the Gulf. This is really a major focus of of of, of my book. What I'm what I'm trying to argue is that when we look at neoliberalism, uh, we can see. Uh, uh, in places like Egypt, um, Jordan, uh, uh, Lebanon, uh, uh, we can see the 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 move towards uh, you know a greater dependency on the market, the opening up of these economies um, to foreign investments, uh, privatization, the sale of land, the sale of state companies. Uh, labor market deregulation, all of the things that we are very familiar with elsewhere in the world uh, are part of how uh, the, the, uh, these Arab economies also have changed since the 1980s. And what it has meant is that uh, the Gulf has been one of the prime beneficiaries of this neoliberal turn um, in the region. So when Egyptian uh, land uh, underwent you know, a really remarkable uh, uh, privatization um, uh, from uh, the, the the early 2000s onwards, 
the Gulf was a major actor in buying up that land um, and, and basically uh, uh, construction activities um, uh, in, in, in Egypt. Uh, so we, we can see this uh, replicated across the whole of the Middle East. So the point being is that when we look at something like uh, these structural adjustment um, packages, we often think, you know, what they did was they made some people really rich inside uh, the country and they led to the impoverishment of large uh, sectors of the population. That may well be true, but we also need to think about what does it mean for the regional uh, dynamics and what does it mean when we look at neoliberalism beyond simply the national borders to try to understand who were the regional and global actors that benefited from this uh, this turn to the market. Uh, and it's 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 really, I think, important to kind of say that neoliberalism and this kind of market turn uh, is, is a major feature of, of what has been the roots of social revolt um, in the Middle East. Uh, and again, Egypt stands out really here. Egypt was held up by the World Bank as being uh, a major uh, uh, model for the rest of the um, the rest of the region to follow in terms of privatization and and, and so forth. Um, in fact, uh, the World Bank awarded Egypt the world's best reformer um, in 2010, the year before Mubarak was um, overthrown. It's, it's not a a thing that they speak about uh, much these days. But you know the these Arab states were held up as being emblematic models of what other um, countries in the region should um, pursue. The the point being that the Gulf was a major beneficiary of of this kind of neoliberal turn. Yeah, and you talk about uh, focusing on three particular sectors of the economy. You talk about how uh, conglomerates from the Gulf have become major actors in uh, uh, the economies of Egypt and other Arab Middle Eastern uh, states. Um, the first one we'll talk about is agribusiness. Um, uh, um, what does food security mean for the Gulf Arab states? Yeah, food security is, I mean, it's a term that emerged uh, globally, actually, in the 1970s. And basically, the idea was uh, uh, that people uh, should have the physical and economic access to uh, sufficient quantities of nutritious and and safe kind of food. Um, uh, It's a fairly simple concept at that level. But I think it's really interesting to see uh, the way that this food security idea um, has been employed or deployed uh, in in the Gulf states, uh, where it has a very uh, rhetorical or discursive function. Um, Because we need to understand that in the Gulf, uh, there's... uh, quite low levels of food production um, uh, for, you know, there's a variety of reasons for this. Um, One of them being that this is an arid region. Um, There are environmental kind of barriers to, to, to food production. Um, And as a result, around three quarters of the Gulf's uh, food consumption is actually met by imports uh, from outside of the region. So, uh, in the Gulf, around 2006, 2007, uh, and 2008, where there was a big global spike in food prices, uh, the Gulf states really started to promote and push this idea of uh, uh, food security, that they needed to ensure uh, that they had adequate supplies of food um, uh, uh, that could be could be accessed regardless of what world prices might be doing. Um, and what it meant is that uh, what I try to do in the book is to say that this, uh, this goal of food security uh, really uh, has, has been used as a way of um, underpinning or encouraging 
the expansion globally of large agribusiness firms um, in the Gulf to other parts of of the world um, and uh, as part of this to the Middle East itself. So we see the expansion of agribusiness firms um, uh, as part of these conglomerates that I spoke about earlier, uh, moving into um, uh, the land purchases, moving into uh, uh, various parts of agro-commodity uh, production in order to uh, discursively, uh, this is to s- supply um, uh, or to secure food supplies for the Gulf. But actually what we see is, a um, uh, uh, you know, the Gulf is the most food secure zone of all Arab countries um, uh, because of its wealth, because of its this kind of uh, expansion. Uh, and it's the neighboring countries such as Yemen um, which are the most food insecure. So, you know, we have this kind of uh, juxtaposition of the most food insecure and the most food secure um, located on the Arabian Peninsula and centered around centered around the Gulf. Um, yeah, you mentioned that uh, uh, conglomerates from the Gulf have, have uh, played a major role in uh, the so-called global land grabs uh, that have become um, a focus of, of research in in. Um, agrarian political economy in the last decade or so and and in um, social movements around access to land and access to food. Um, How have the firms and institutions from the Gulf been able to buy so much land around the world? And what are some of the difficulties that they have run into as they have tried to increase the capital intensity and productivity of agriculture in some of these uh, developing regions? Well, certainly this this connects to the point we were discussing earlier. There has been strong support uh, from the the states uh, in the Gulf. Uh, So uh, in particular, Saudi Saudi Arabia and and the United Arab Emirates stand out here, uh, where uh, state state institutions have uh, supported the expansion of agribusiness firms from these countries um, globally. So, uh, in, in including the, um, the 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 purchase um, of land at very cheap uh, cheap prices. So, uh, the, the 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 Saudi Arabia, for example, um, uh, set up a, a large fund uh, targeting land purchases and basically said, "Look, we'll we'll support our domestic agribusiness firms to go abroad, um, buy up this land, uh, and we'll cajole, um, we will." Uh, uh, you know, provide uh, political support for this process um, um, uh, in 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 other in other countries. For example, I'm not just talking about the Middle East, but the Philippines is is, is one place where Saudi Arabia had a major um, attempt at, at land grabs. Uh, Sudan um, is another. Egypt is another. Uh, we can see this replicated in Pakistan, um, uh, India, and and elsewhere. So. Uh, these these are uh, you know these are land grabs, but I think one of the things to to point out here is that it's interesting to see that uh, there was obviously resistance, um, particularly from farmers in these areas, um, who in some cases were forced off their land or forced into kind of market activities um, that were detrimental to their to their existence. Uh, so protests around uh, these kinds of land grabs meant that uh, very often they might have been headline figures in a newspaper, uh, but they actually didn't really mean much on the ground in these states. And it's interesting to see that a, a lot of the land now that the Gulf um, has been involved in, in purchasing actually is in 
places like the United States, uh, Australia, uh, parts of Europe. Um, that's where some of the big uh, farming activity from the Gulf is now is now um, uh, located. Right. Um, these are places where uh, property rights are more secure. Um, um, capitalist social relations are more firmly embedded in, in the agrarian sector and in, in the rural areas uh, than in a lot of the global South countries that they've previously tried to purchase land in. Uh, where land was not has not been commodified for as long as it has been in in um, these advanced industrialized countries and and places where um, um, a much larger percentage of the population depends on access to land for their for their livelihoods and and in this way uh, political contestation and democracy is is a real obstacle to the uh, um, um, ability of Gulf conglomerates to um, uh, transform agriculture in these regions in more capital intensive ways that uh, wind up displacing people. Um, uh, perhaps you, you note that perhaps more important influence that Gulf firms and states have had on regional and global agri agribusiness supply chains and land purchases is through their control and operation of logistics infrastructures. Why are agribusiness firms increasingly diversifying into transportation, warehousing, ports, and other sectors that underpin the circulation of food commodities? Uh, what did they stand to gain from this? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting part of looking at the agribusiness sector in the Gulf. Uh, that uh, you know, a lot of the focus is typically placed on uh, land grabs, uh, and uh, you know, we shouldn't downplay the importance of of this. But if we look at these large agribusiness firms, uh, they are increasingly vertically integrated. In other words, they 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 don't just in, they're not just involved in primary agriculture; they're also involved in the storage, the transportation um, of food across borders, uh, the processing and manufacturing of food, and also the retailing uh, of food. Uh, so if you if you look at uh, some of the, the large Gulf firms, you can really see this uh, at a global level. And it's, it's really quite fascinating to kind of to unpack some of these things. So one example is um, a UAE, UAE firm, Al-Dahra, uh, which uh, is involved in primary agriculture in uh, rice and fruits and vegetables, dairy, dairy uh, cows, etc. Uh, but recently, they've been expanding, for example, into the provision of animal food or, or forage, uh, and uh, you know, reflecting what I was just saying earlier, that they are now actually the largest forage exporters, uh, animal feed exporters in the United States, Italy, and Spain. Uh, so it's quite remarkable to think of this UAE firm, uh, a large firm. But uh, from a country that has a very limited agricultural sector, that are now the largest forage exporters in these three leading states. Uh, it's one example of how this firm has uh, diversified into um, the provision of, of animal feed. Uh, it also, this large firm, Aldahra, also operates um, uh, milling of, of rice and flour across Europe and South Asia. They're involved in logistics, um, um, ports, uh, storage facilities, and transport. Um, of food and agricultural products. So it's from uh, the, the, the farm to the shelf, uh, we see these, these agribusiness firms based in the Gulf uh, dominating uh, 
uh, these these virtually integrated circuits. So I think it's quite important to see to see this. Uh, it, it is on one hand um, uh, for the Middle East, it means that food production in the Middle East has really become to a significant degree oriented around uh, the dynamics of capital accumulation in in the Gulf states. Um, this is one of the things I was really trying to emphasize that that when we look at what happens to food in in places like Egypt. Uh, it's 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 uh, increasingly oriented towards capital accumulation in 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 the Gulf states, particularly Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Um, right, and um, you also mentioned that uh, Gulf Gulf capital and Gulf conglomerates have become embedded in the production of circulation uh, of food in, in neighboring states like Egypt and in, uh, elsewhere in the Middle East. What are the political consequences that? Um, Gulf involvement in the agricultural sector have had in these in these countries, specifically in Egypt. Well, Egypt's a very important example because it's a it's a major agricultural producer among uh, other Arab uh, states, uh, uh, and it, as I pointed out, it also has been uh, the state. The, the country that has been at the leading edge of structural adjustment um, in the region. So uh, today we can see uh, a large proportion um, of uh, food exports uh, in Egypt um, going to Gulf markets. Uh, uh, it's, uh, as I was writing the book, the figures was around a third of total uh, food exports from Egypt actually uh, finding their way to the Gulf, and this is a significant increase from um, earlier earlier years. So, on one hand, uh, that that's one side of things, but we can see also uh, Gulf firms uh, dominate uh, the production of food in Egypt, uh, and uh, uh, this is for sale both in Egypt as well as for. Uh, Manu- uh, processing in Egypt and export to the Gulf um, itself. So uh, we can see these Gulf uh, agribusiness firms looking, if you look at different sectors like uh, fruits and vegetables, poultry, oils, edible oils, um, you can see the way that Gulf firms really play a major role in Egyptian agribusiness. Um, in fact, uh, there are 31 food and agricultural companies listed on the Egyptian stock exchange and around half of those are either control, fully controlled or, or have significant levels of Gulf um, uh, connections to the Gulf, um, to Gulf capital. So you can see, I think this is one quite striking figure of how Gulf firms are really uh, embedded in, in, in food and agriculture in, in, in Egypt. So what are, what are the implications for this for, for Egypt? Well, number one, um, it means that uh, in the event of uh, a spike in food prices or, or shortages of food in the Gulf, um, uh, these are firms that have been uh, set up to prioritise the supply of food to the Gulf rather than Egypt. Um, so that that's one, and this is quite explicit in some in number of the the ways that the deals that have been signed or in the investments that have been made by Gulf firms in in Egypt. Um, secondly, it means that, uh, and this is not strange uh, globally, but it means that Egyptian agriculture has become an export-oriented industry uh, uh, and uh, where the Gulf is centrally embedded, uh, and it is not uh, principally designed at meeting the needs of food uh, in Egypt itself. Um, So this is a a major issue for for people on the land and also uh, uh, the consumption of of food in in, in Egypt. 
and as as we we mentioned earlier, uh, this is not simply uh, you know ag- primary agricultural production or, or the purchases of land. It's also to do with the manufacturing of food in Egypt, the storage and transport um, of food in Egypt, and control over retail and supermarkets um, in, in in Egypt itself. Again, if you look at these all of these different parts of the agribusiness chain, you can see uh, a very deep uh, involvement and control by Gulf-based firms. Um, the next sector that you focus on in the book is uh, construction and real estate, uh, both within the, the GCC countries and in the wider Middle East. Um, the production of space, to use Henri Lefebvre's uh, phrase, has been a, an important source of capital accumulation for Gulf conglomerates. Uh, how have cities in the Arab world been transformed by neoliberal urban policies and what roles have Gulf conglomerates played in this transformation? Yes, again, uh, uh, not exceptionally, uh, cities in, in the Middle East um, have undergone, uh, uh, you know, have, have urban planning and the design of cities in, in recent decades has really uh, moved towards market-based models um, of, of planning in which the interests of private sector um, developers uh, have taken priority. So this, this means, for example, uh, privatization of large swathes of land, um, the lifting of, of rent caps uh, uh, in uh, capital cities and urban areas, um, the encouragement of, uh, of foreign investments into the built environment, uh, the emergence of gated communities, uh, tourist resorts, etc. on one hand, and uh, informal and slum areas on the other. These kinds of uh, patterns of urban development that we see elsewhere in the global south, we can certainly see um, in the Arab world. And uh, as as I mentioned earlier, one of the prime beneficiaries of this opening up of uh, the city and the development of the city uh, uh, has been uh, Gulf-based investors. So... Uh, we could see this uh, in if we look, for example, at mega projects. Uh, so these are large-scale real estate projects. Um, uh, uh, what I do in, in the book is I look at projects that are worth more than a hundred million uh, US dollars um, uh, across six Arab uh, countries: Algeria, Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, and Tunisia, and Lebanon. Um, if you look at those six Arab countries uh, between 2008 and 2017, 40% of all large-scale real estate, um, all mega projects um, across those six countries were owned, developed, or built by a GCC-based firm. Um, It's a remarkable figure. 46 out of 199 of these mega projects um, were directly connected to um, Gulf-based firms. Uh, This was more than half of the total value of the project market, the real estate market, um, across those six um, Arab states in that period. So you can see that the transformation of the Arab built environment was not just a matter of opening up um, and privatization of land, opening up to foreign investment, but it was also driven by inflows of Gulf capital and the activities of, of, of Gulf-based construction firms, Gulf-based developers, Gulf-based finances in these uh, in these Arab um, Arab states. So, uh, when we think about this, uh, you know, highly polarized built environment, uh, 
the, the forms of development at the Arab urban scale are interlaced with how capital accumulates um, in, in the Gulf region. Uh, this, I think, is really important to kind of bring out. Um, so, yeah, that, that I think, is, 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 a, is, a, is a clear uh, uh, connection. Um, one of the other things I think that's really interesting to look at in the, around this question of the city and the Arab city, it's not just about you know, real estate, mega projects, gated communities and so forth, uh, and the policies associated with it. There are other aspects to this as well. So, for example, uh, infrastructure, provision of infrastructure in urban areas, um, power, water, energy, uh, uh, telecommunications sector um, is also really heavily dominated uh, by Gulf-based telecoms. Um, and to me, this is actually one of the most interesting aspects to uh, to these processes in the Middle East. Uh, one of the things uh, I, I've tried to do is look at uh, the mobile phone licenses um, that are present across uh, uh, Arab, Arab countries. Uh, and uh, it's remarkable once you start to do this and you can see the, the figure, uh, you know, you, you look at is more than 50% of all mobile licenses um, are fully or partially owned by Gulf-based groups. Um, they control the largest share of, of mobile markets, telecommunications markets um, across the Middle East. And this is, this is really important because this is not just about who operates your mobile phones. It's about, the way that cities, uh, these telecom firms play a big role in, in obviously surveillance, in security, in in this kind of smart cities concepts that that is really the buzzword in urban planning these days. So the Gulf's kind of is, is at the center of these urban processes, and trying to unpack these connections, I think, is really is really fruitful. Um, what have some what have been some of the political consequences of these uh, urban transformations? Uh, you've noted. Uh, in the book that um, to some extent struggles over the city uh, and, and over the provision of public services uh, played an important part in uh, the mobilizations of the Arab spring. Um, how, how has this transformation uh, had political consequences for these, for these other Arab states? Yes, you, you can certainly see this, I think, uh, uh, I mean, to pick out Egypt again, uh, post the overthrow of Mubarak, one of the demands that came uh, from the Egyptian uh, uh, uprising was to bring to account uh, those uh, land deals um, that were made under the Mubarak era, where land was sold at very cheap prices, um, uh, you know, essentially given away to, to developers. And it was really interesting to look at this because it, it highlighted um, this question because a lot of these land deals were actually uh, land that was provided um, at way below market prices to uh, Gulf-based investors um, by the Mubarak uh, regime. So you can see here um, the protests uh, and the attempts to hold to account uh, the policies that we saw under people like Mubarak coming up against the reality of these uh, regional um, uh, flows and regional unevenness um, that we've spoken about. Uh, furthermore, when you look at um, you know protests in places like Beirut uh, uh, or in in Jordan, Amman, uh, around uh, uh, the lifting of rent caps and rent controls in in the capital cities, uh, if you look at protests around. Uh, uh, the clearing of, of uh, informal housing areas um, and the kind of 
uh, prioritization of these gated communities. Uh, you know, the, these have, in, in many cases um, over the last 10 years, been, been the site of important protests. But again, this is not just a pro- these are not just protests about what happens nationally, what happens at the level of the, uh, uh, you know, the urban planning departments um, of Egypt, Lebanon, Jordan, Morocco, and so forth. It's also about how the Gulf has been a major actor in driving these urban changes um, and in benefiting and in transforming uh, the Arab city in these kinds of ways. Um, and, and underlying these transformations in, in agribusiness and, uh, and in real estate, um, has been the role that Gulf conglomerates have played in um, financial markets in the region, and um, and the role that financial markets have have played in the in shaping processes of uh, class formation, both in the Gulf and in the broader Middle East. Um, you talk about what are the three economic transformations associated with financial with financialization in the political economy literature and uh to what extent are these uh um transformations present both within the gulf itself and uh within the broader middle east yeah uh, there, there's as you point out uh, there's been quite a burgeoning literature now for a number of years around this concept of financialization. Uh, and, and essentially what it means is that financial markets have come to play uh, a really prominent role in uh, uh, our daily lives uh, uh, and in ensuring um, our futures, whether it be through uh, pensions, whether it through be through investments in stock markets, uh, 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 whether it be through uh, borrowing um, uh, in order to support ourselves or our families. Uh, it also means that non-financial firms uh, increasingly depend upon financial practices, financial activities, uh, 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 and are involved in these kinds of things, even if they are non, if their primary activities remain uh, non-financial. So, um, this the literature on financialization has typically focused on economies, uh, major economies like the US or Europe, and to some degree, uh, uh, Japan. Uh, And I think uh, it's interesting to look at financialization in other parts of the world, including um, the Middle East, because there are uh, a lot of parallels, I think, uh, uh, in in, uh, the Middle East uh, with the general literature on financialization. So, Um, You can see, for example, again, this is partly connected to the real estate uh, discussion that we've just had. Uh, There's been a strong push uh, for uh, by uh, international financial institutions and banks uh, to get people living in in the Middle East uh, to increasingly depend upon mortgages um, and and borrowing uh, in order to, uh, you know, to build houses or, or to purchase to purchase housing, um, and uh, that this is just one example where uh, banks and financial markets intermediate um, individuals and households in in the Middle East. So, what's interesting here is to is to see uh, that these processes they they're common across the Middle East, but we also see the way that again GCC related banks have really driven this process in in a major way. Uh, they do this through. Uh, purchasing uh, and becoming major actors in banking uh, and financial markets outside of the Gulf itself. Um, so 
just to give you an example, uh, in Jordan, in Palestine, Egypt, and Lebanon, uh, 50% of all non-government bank are, uh, uh, sorry, non-government bank assets are held by GCC banks. Um, it's a quite a remarkable figure when you when you when you think about this. That uh, Gulf relate Gulf-based banks um, uh, 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 really active in these cross-border activities uh, and banking markets in other uh, Arab countries. Uh, Jordan to, is is really stands out in this respect. Eighty-six um, percent. Uh, of uh, uh, bank assets in Jordan are actually controlled by GCC banks. Um, uh, so if you are a Jordanian citizen, uh, you are uh, borrowing for a house or borrowing for a car or borrowing for education or health or whatever it might be, you are essentially likely to be borrowing from a Gulf uh, a, a Gulf-based um, bank. Um, so Gulf banks intermediate the relationship between uh, Jordanian citizens and uh, wider uh, financial markets. Um, so when we think about financialization, it's again not something that's simply national bound, nationally bound. It's something that we need to think about uh, in this regional regional perspective. To think about how do uh, Gulf-based financial actors drive these processes in other neighboring states. Um, and. Uh... With all this talk about financialization in in these countries and the role, the increasing role that the Gulf is playing in the financial sectors of other Arab Middle Eastern states, I, I as I was reading this, I was thinking about how differently uh, critical political economy uh, scholars such as yourself think about these processes than uh, mainstream economics and the financial press. Uh, in the mainstream research on uh, economics, um, the growth of deposits as a percentage of GDP, for example, uh, or the increasing prominence of, of foreign financial firms in, in these economies would represent the growing availability of investment capital that can drive economic uh, growth without having to print money domestically um, or, or have sovereigns uh, borrowing money and allocating resources. Um, uh, what's the problem with this mainstream perspective on the financial sector? Is there something particularly nefarious about the activities of Gulf financial firms throughout the region from a uh, economic development, broader economic development perspective? I wouldn't call it uh, particularly nefarious in, in, in comparison to other, uh, you know, international banks or other, uh, you know, Western banks or, or whatever it might be. I think uh, they're equally nefarious, perhaps not not in, not in uh, any uh, any kind of different way. Uh, but I, I think the problem with this uh, is largely to do with with questions of of debt, um, and we can see that uh, uh, you know growing indebtedness of households uh, uh, really, uh, particularly at moments of economic crisis, uh, really can negatively impact um, individuals um, uh, uh, and and households at those at those moments. Uh, we saw this in. Um, the United States and Europe very uh, very clearly, and we can also see this uh, in increasingly this uh, levels of high levels of debt um, uh, in 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 the Middle East. Uh, the other side to this, of course, is uh, government debt, uh, and here we can see, particularly in the last three three to five years, uh, very sharp increases in levels of government 
debt uh, uh, in the region, in the, in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, some of this, or a large bulk of this, is connected to international lenders like the IMF um, and the World Bank, uh, also bilateral lending from individual countries. But uh, one of the understudied, I think, aspects to this is the way that the Gulf states have also been major lenders uh, to other Arab uh, countries. Uh, one of the things the Gulf did um, uh, is actually place their dollar, uh, dollar reserve deposits into the central banks of other uh, Arab states. Um, for example, they did this in Egypt, they did this in Yemen, they did this in Tunisia, uh, they've done this uh, in, in Jordan. Uh, uh, so what this means is that uh, uh, these countries, it's, it's one way that the Gulf has extended its political and economic influence over these other Arab states, because if you are a country and your reserves are, uh, come from the Gulf, the GCC deposits in your central bank, um, and you're dependent upon this for access to international lending, uh, for stable currencies and so forth, uh, the Gulf has enormous sway over what you do as a country, if you ever if you ever displease um, uh, what the Gulf states might uh, uh, think about or, or in, in your policy making, it's simply a matter of withdrawing those deposits and you detonate a financial crisis. Um, so uh, it's I think this is a really interesting uh, kind of innovation uh, of the Gulf for this this kind of placing of their dollar deposits in other in other Arab. Uh, other Arab countries. Just one example of this, which I, I, I really find very striking. Um, uh, by 2016, um, Egypt owed Egypt owed uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, the UAE, and Kuwait um, more than the total it owed to all international financial institutions or any other country or region in the world. Um, so when we think about debt, global debt, it's not simply a matter of the of the you know the standard. Uh, Kind of targets of, of debt campaigners around the World Bank and and um, IMF. It's also these regional actors that we need to consider um, that can play a very negative role on on development processes in 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 the Middle East. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I had uh, uh, no idea to what extent um, sovereign uh, states in the Middle East were um, dependent upon the Gulf for access to to financial markets and and currency reserves. Um, before I read your book, uh, I think that that's a really um, interesting tool of, of geopolitical leverage, right? That Gulf states have over other Middle Eastern states and can be can have really not only nefarious impacts on economic development, but also on uh, the trajectory of political reform, because this essentially can make the Gulf states, if not if not exactly a veto player, certainly give them inordinate influence over the the processes of of political reform. Um, Absolutely, yes. Um, so uh, we've been talking about how the uh, the Gulf economies are about more than just oil; they're about finance, real estate, agribusiness. But oil is still very very much central to the economies of of the GCC. Uh, and as you, you've noted in the book, oil prices have dropped off in recent years and analysts forecast a, a new normal of, of a long period of, of sluggish demand and low prices. Um, how have Gulf governments responded to this new economic environment? And what are some of the features of the new economic visions put forward by these governments? 
Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is an even more pertinent question today, of course, because of the uh, the COVID crisis, uh, uh, which has had a major impact on oil markets uh, globally and the price of oil. So there's uh, there's a double whammy here. It's not just the the downturn in oil prices that occurred in from mid 2014. Um, it's also been uh, since uh, January February of this year uh, another very severe drop. Um, in the demand uh, for oil and 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 also the the price of oil uh, globally. So, what have the Gulf states um, done in in this regard? Uh, well, as you mentioned, there's 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 a range of um, they call them vision uh, documents. Uh, each of the Gulf states have put forward these kinds of uh, strategic planning, economic planning, um, and aimed at kind of diversifying. Uh, uh, their economic activities away from oil. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, debate about how real these strategy documents are uh, and whether they'll actually really, you know, see the light of day. Uh, but certainly you, looking at them, I think, is very interesting because it, it, it demonstrates the way that the Gulf states have really, again, prioritised the interests of uh, private capital uh, and uh, the development of their own uh, uh, capitalist classes. Uh, so we are talking here about uh, moves towards privatization of, of different sectors that were previously perhaps state-owned in the Gulf, um, uh, the development of new markets uh, around things like healthcare and education, two uh, prominent aspects of this, tourism, another important aspect, um, logistics and transport, uh, with, with a major uh, role for Gulf private capital um, in these sectors, uh, obviously supported by the state. So that's one side of these, these vision documents. Uh, the other side, though, is very, really, really important to, to consider here is the, the structure and nature of the uh, working class in the Gulf. Um, uh, these states stand out because of their very heavy dependence upon migrant workers. So uh, in each of the Gulf states, more than 50% of the labor force are made up of uh, temporary migrant workers. So these are people uh, mostly from South Asia, uh, but also from the Middle East and, and, uh, and elsewhere, uh, who are there uh, dependent upon a work contract. Um, they, they, uh, they make up uh, more than half of the labor force. Um, in some states, 80 to 90% um, of the labor force uh, uh, are made up of these temporary workers. Uh, there is no viable route to kind of permanent residency or, or certainly not citizenship. Um, so uh, these 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 workers are highly exploited. They they don't have access to uh, uh, any kind of labor rights. Um, uh, any kind of protest movements are simply met with deportation um, uh, legally. Uh, uh, met with deportation. Uh, so the, the the importance of this, you know, foregrounding this uh, migrant uh, workforce is that at moments of crisis. Um, for example, the crisis connected to the, the drop in the oil prices. One of the things that the Gulf states uh, can do and, and has been doing uh, is to deport en masse uh, millions, literally millions, uh, of, of these temporary migrant workers. Uh, so uh, uh, it's a way of, uh, you know, to borrow a term uh, from David Harvey, it's a, it's a way of spatially displacing the crisis um, from uh, the Gulf onto 
the labor sending countries in places like India and Pakistan and Bangladesh and Egypt and Jordan. Um, it's these labor sending countries uh, that, that, that uh, feel the brunt because they are so heavily dependent upon remittances sent home by workers um, in the Gulf. Uh, now this is not a uh, you know a panacea for the for the decline in oil prices, but it is one way in which the the crisis can partially be displaced onto poorer uh, countries, um, uh, neighbouring countries. So that's certainly one thing that we've seen, uh, and it's accelerated with the COVID crisis, the the, the most recent. Uh, right, um, uh, the dependence on on cheap. Uh foreign labor that doesn't have any kind of uh, uh, labor rights or citizenship rights is one aspect of um, of the the constellation of social interests in the way of maintaining social and political order in the Gulf uh, uh, states. Um, uh, what are some of the likely social and political consequences of um, privatization and other uh, reforms that Gulf states have been talking about. Um, the role of the state in the economy is driven in part by the need to um, satisfy certain social interests in order to maintain political order. Uh, to what extent do uh, reforms that deepen capitalist social relations uh, threaten political stability? Uh, this is a really, really important question, I think, and it's really kind of the, uh, you know, as we look towards the future in the region, it's, it's really uh, a critical one because there, there's an image, I think, in, in a lot of the Western media that the Gulf states are these, uh, you know, places of wealthy opulence. Uh, there's no poverty. Uh, everyone who's a citizen um, kind of lives the life of uh, luxury uh, due to the oil rents that are circulating uh, throughout the region, uh, and that is that is a very false um, picture, uh, in the sense that there are uh, even among the citizen population um, uh, in some of these states, particularly Saudi Arabia, Oman, uh, and and Bahrain, uh, you can see significant levels um, of unemployment, uh, levels of poverty and marginalization. Um, uh, and very high levels of inequality among citizens. Uh, uh, so, you know, this was prior to the, uh, the recent crises um, that we've spoken about. Uh, so it's, it, it's, it's no surprise that in, in 2011, uh, we did see social protest uh, as part of the Arab uprisings. Uh, uh, Bahrain really stood out in, in this regard. Oman also, uh, even Saudi Arabia, we see uh, in Kuwait also um, uh, uh, various levels of, of, of social discontent. Um, so I, I, I certainly think that one of the one of the aspects to these vision documents and the kind of economic strategies that are being put forward by the, the Gulf states uh, uh, is is not simply the impact that it will have on on. Uh, migrant workers, but also the impact that it potentially will have on citizen populations who uh, inevitably uh, are being pushed towards, uh, you know, lower level, lower wage levels and and, and uh, kind of poorer conditions. Um, so, you know, how this develops politically is a really important question. Um, uh, and I think it's something we need to kind of see uh, uh, as it's, it's part of that the point that I made earlier about integrating the Gulf into uh, the, the politics of the wider Middle East. It's not simply uh, these states as being some kind of exceptional 
and distinct um, aspect, but actually are, are really uh, central to the politics um, and in many ways can reflect the politics um, in, in other parts of the region. Um, right. And, and speaking of uh, the politics in the other parts of the region, we talked uh, about the financial leverage that Gulf states uh, can exercise over other Middle Eastern states um, and, and the geopolitical influence that the Gulf has in the region. Um, how, how are Gulf states using their geopolitical influence to, as you put it, remake the Middle East in a manner that simultaneously pervert, preserves and extends what went before? And what are the challenges that this strategy is likely to encounter? There's a range of, I mean, there's, again, a range of different uh, factors that we need to think about here. Uh, you know, certainly uh, the, the the GCC was one of the main beneficiaries of the kind of last couple of decades. Um, and post the Arab uprisings in 2010, 2011, uh, the Gulf states have really attempted to uh, cement um, and direct uh, and channel um, the, the the region in a in a in a way uh, that meets its own interests. Um, so that's been done uh, through supporting uh, some of the the, the political movements um, in places uh, 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 like uh, Egypt, Syria, uh, Libya, Tunisia. Um, all stand out in this regard. Um, it's been supporting governments um, in Egypt. Is really is is a, again an archetypal example here. Um, uh, and it's it's bent. Um, uh, uh, it's it's also important here to bring in uh, what we briefly mentioned earlier: the, the differences in the Gulf itself. Um, in particular, the difference between Qatar on one hand and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates on the other. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE is really the main access um, axis axis of the GCC. Uh, and there's been a, a, a long-standing rivalry with with Qatar uh, in, in this respect. Um, so when you look at kind of the, the the regional map, you can see on one hand Qatar supporting um, uh, particular movements or governments, on, and on the other, Saudi Arabia and the UAE supporting other uh, opposing uh, forces. So that's a pattern replicated throughout all of the all of the region. Um, the other thing to put on top of this, of course, um, is the rivalry uh, with Iran. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, again, this is a part of a regional jo- jockeying for power, uh, most strikingly between Iran and Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE as well. Um, so that's one, one side of it. The other side, of course, is the, uh, the direct involvement in and, and the, the war um, that's been led by Saudi Arabia and the UAE in Yemen. Uh, uh, which has been a, a humanitarian uh, a disaster, uh, but it has also been a, uh, a way, I think, um, where Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates are, are both attempting to uh, stake their positions um, in this very important kind of uh, regional, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Red Sea, Indian Ocean, um, the ports infrastructure in these areas. Uh, a lot of the war is about um, who, are, who is going to control these routes um, in, in any kind of post, uh, post-conflict uh, situation. So the Yemen war is not simply about um, rivalry with, with, with Iran. It's partly to do with that, but it's also about kind of the geopolitical influence, I think, of Saudi Arabia and the UAE in, in, in the wider Middle East. Um, the other aspect uh, 
to all of this is what is going to happen in the post-conflict, uh, different post-conflict scenarios. Uh, so, you know, obviously Syria, uh, Yemen and Libya are really the three uh, important uh, cases here uh, where you have, uh, uh, you know, huge levels of um, displacement, of, of population displacements. The Middle East is now the highest, uh, you know, world leader in terms of um, uh, uh, displaced peoples globally. Uh, so the, the kinds of um, political settlements that emerge in uh, these three states, uh, the kinds of reconstruction plans that we see, I think are going to be uh, uh, very significantly shaped um, by uh, the Gulf states, uh, uh, whether it be through lending um, or whether it be through direct involvement in uh, infrastructure uh, reconstruction, in development of um, different kinds of uh, uh, economic sectors and activities. Uh, so the, the, the fact that the Gulf has been such a prominent actor over the last 10 to 20 years uh, uh, and has been a major protagonist in these kinds of conflicts um, means that they also will, will will play a major role, I think, in the kind of direction of of post conflict reconstruction. Uh, all of this, of course, is not by in, in any sense meant to imply that the Gulf will be able to determine directly what happens. Uh, there are many other actors here, uh, in particular, obviously the United States, um, Europe, uh, China, Russia, Iran, uh, that will all play a major uh, will have a major say in this. But uh, we do need to think about how do uh, how, what what kind of role the Gulf states will play in this, and what kind of impact the kind of fissures and rivalries in the Gulf might uh, might play on on these dynamics. Okay, Adam, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this was uh, the new books on world affairs interview with Adam Hania. He's the author of Money, Markets, and Monarchies: The Gulf Cooperation Council and the Political Economy of the Contemporary Middle East from Cambridge University Press. Uh, thank you so much. Have a nice day. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much. <laughs>